electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Everybody, I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Everyone's talking about whether the Fed needs to take rates to 6% now, but what if even that number is too low? According to the Taylor rule, rates should be headed towards 9 or 10%. Is it really feasible? We'll talk to John Taylor himself about it. Plus, office rates have been crushed by rising rates and slowing demand, but there's one name a little better positioned than the rest. The stock up 14% so far this year and getting an upgrade. The analyst behind that call and a couple of big downgrades today joins us to make his case. And installing a war cabinet. That's what Kyle Bass is calling Xi Jinping's latest move. So do you stay away from investing there? Our market guest still sees opportunity. We'll have that momentarily. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu with these pretty big numbers. As green as your dress right now, Kelly, is what we're talking about. 52 points to the upside for the S&P 500. That represents the session high right now. So again, I'll put a little 52 up here to give you some context for the S&P. Even at the lows of the session, we were still up about 14 handles. So generally a positive day above 4,000, above the 50 and 200 day moving averages for the S&P 500. The Dow Industrials 33,280 up 275 points, up about nine tenths of one percent and one and a half percent north of that gains 181 points for the Nasdaq composite 11,644. It's a Friday. So let's take a look at where the action was this week from a sector perspective. If you take a look at where the outperformers were, a little bit more on the cyclical side of things, the material sector spider up about roughly 4%, 2.5% gains for the communication services sector spider. So a couple of your more leading sectors there. Meanwhile, utilities and consumer staples, the real laggards. And remember, as interest rates go higher, one-year treasuries are yielding 5%. The dividend yield on the utility sector spider is around 3%. For the consumer staples, it's about 2.5%. So would you rather take a one-year Treasury note at 5% yield or take some of those dividend yields in those dividend-paying sectors? That's a big question for some investors right now. And then let's check on cryptocurrencies. Not a stock, but we're seeing a lot of action right now. A lot of it tied to negative sentiment around the financial woes facing Silvergate Capital right now, the big crypto-adjacent lender and bank. Right now, Bitcoin prices over the course of the last year, you can see Ether prices down about 45% during that span. We're going to watch a couple of key parts of the market. We're watching Bitcoin prices at 21,500. That's the longer term 200 day moving average, Kelly, for Bitcoin. 1490, 1,490 thereabouts for Ethereum. So keep an eye on those levels. Once to watch, Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, I'll see you soon, Dom. Thanks. The 10-year yield back below 4% today. We've got whiplash from these moves lately. Rick Santelli at the CME with more. What's driving us down now, Rick? You know, it's a very, very interesting question because there's several good answers, but I think the context should be when Fed officials, previous and current, come out saying, 6% may be needed, and we see this much green in equities, maybe the better question is, what do investors see that Fed officials don't? And my opinion on that is, is that even though it has been a bumpy ride down on levels of inflation that were historically higher, 
several plus months ago. It's now a question of what happens over the next six to 10 months. And believe me, people calling for 6% don't know any more in their crystal ball than those that are buying stocks that are turning green today. And if you look at a one day of 10s, you could clearly see that we're giving a lot back today. And that's two year. Now, if you look at a two day of 10 year, you could clearly see that we're below yesterday's low yields. And that's pretty interesting because at 397, we're now down nine on the day but only up two on the week. So we're really taking back some of those moves. And if you look at the chart next, that goes back to October, you can see we've only had two closes in nearly four months above 4%. And that doesn't even count the fact that the high's four and a quarter. And finally, twos to tens, it's hovering at minus 89. It went less inverted as rates went up on the long end. And obviously, as they go down, we're getting more inverted. Where we sit, we could be making another fresh pass at four decade extremes. And finally, Boone yields yesterday closed at 275. That was an 11 and a half year high cycle close. Today, they gave a bit back, but you could see there, they're really making up some lost ground on an ECB that's been much too dovish. Kelly, Rick, back to before you. I let you go, so so I can ponder this all weekend long. So as people have kind of mooted this no landing theory, um, as the data have come in stronger, have the yield curves gotten any less inverted? Have they steepened at all? You know, it seems to me that the, the, to answer your question, uh, uh, three months to tens is getting a little weird because of what's going on with bills. True. I like watching twos to tens, and to answer your question, no. It doesn't really seem to be a long-lasting impact on the inversions in the curve. And what's more, does it, what the Fed takes overnight rates is not necessarily painting you an accurate picture of what market rates are going to be. And even bigger question, why is anybody interested, Kelly? A lot of people are interested in rates for one reason, because they want to know how it's going to affect stocks. So if you back into this equation to try to answer your question, all that really matters is what stocks think about when the Fed's going to end. Because the pent-up demand to buy, as the professor with Judge will say later on, don't market time it. You need to be around if you're going to catch these big rallies yeah. that most likely are going to occur when the Fed white flag comes out. And it will come out sometime this year. I would just feel a lot better about things if we were uninverting, you know, as we got that data and not looking as, as bad as ever, uh, as that chart shows. Rick, well, we you know, it's really about a recession, too, then, Kelly. Absolutely. Uh, another question that goes into that is, and I'll tell you what, I don't care what the experts say, for what it's worth, uh, most of the people whose opinions I respect most, a slowing's coming. How much it slows is the issue. All right. Let's perfectly cue that up for our next debate. Rick Santelli, we'll see you soon, sir. Thank you. Where does this all leave investors? My next guest says the key is making the mistake of returning to the playbook of the past decade. We need a change in leadership for the next bull market run. Joining me now is Dan Suzuki, the deputy CIO and chairman of the investment committee at Richard Bernstein Advisors. And back on set with us is Dom Chu. Welcome to both of you. Dan, it's great to have you here. So I think this is important because we all identify the 20 tens with Fang, and would you like to see sort of reliable new leadership to get really excited about the rally today? 
Uh, yeah, that, that's right, Kelly. I think, um, you know, the history on this is very clear. There's not that many tried and true rules within markets, but one that you can hang your hat on is that future leadership is never the same, same as prior cycle leadership, and bear markets always signal that change in leadership. So we've already had the signal. We know that the next 10 years is going to look very different. And so, you know, you can see in the performance this year that people just want to go buy, you know, what they've, what they've, you know, come to love in their portfolios. That's probably not going to be the leadership over the next 10 years years, but that is the opportunity. What, <laughs> if only you could tell us exactly what the new leadership would be, uh, then we could all chase it to the moon, I guess. What are your kind of leading theories right now? Yeah, so, I mean, you have to first separate the short term from the long term. I think for the short term, you know, th it, this is more about, you know, owning higher quality defensive assets for the most part. But for the long term leadership, I do think, you know, if you think about what happened in the last few years, you basically had a bubble formed within huge parts of the equity market. Bubbles work like huge vacuums for capital. So you have too much capital allocated to one part of the market. The opportunity is the scarcity created in other parts of the market. So you can basically go anywhere. The farther that you get from the bubble, I think the bigger the opportunity. So if you flip the, the last 10 years on its head, it was U.S. large cap growth. I'm more inclined to think that the next 10 years is going to be more about international, hmm. more about small caps, more about value. And everything I just mentioned trades at like a 30 to 50 percent discount you know, to the overall S&P. Uh, obviously, a lot of people are excited, Dom, about the idea that it's a stock pickers uh, market as well, although Dan mentioned a bunch of, of kind of styles to lean into. I think his point is dead on because it's so tempting to just say, oh, I'll just buy this stuff on the cheap and I'll, I'll be able to get these gains. But just like, you know, investors are always chasing the last rally. The Fed's always fighting the last crisis. You know, we're always fighting the last war. It, it, it seems as though there's a good amount of muscle memory that investors are still going to have to kind of work their way through. And Dan is right, because if you look at this as a transition or end of a cycle, right, the, the, the cycle that we've seen since the ultra low rate environments came in post great financial crisis, that tends to that that's a, that was a massive secular run. I could make the argument that, you know, the pandemic lows were a bear market as well. Mm -hmm. But then people came right back into large cap growth mm. in the wake of that. But in this case here, I think what Dan is trying to point out is that this is a sea change for the markets, because now we have a tightening cycle for the Fed, the likes of which we've never really seen un unprecedented on that scale. And if you look at that, that there may be other parts of the market that are going to do well. I don't know, though, however, if folks are going to be that enamored with this idea that large cap value or value oriented sectors could provide the kind of leadership exactly. that like that mega cap tech did over the last 10 to 12 because years. Because we are an innovative economy, Dan. We want to bet on, you know, we can understand technology in large cap because we go, they changed the world, right? And so maybe you can make a case for something like energy now. I can see how that might, uh, you know, be. But what would you say has real upside potential or do you just see this as a, a more stunted kind of uh, bull market that we might experience? Well, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, how much you pay and what you're getting for it, right, Kelly? And I think if you think about, you know, all the innovation that you're talking about, you know, you got to go back. We have a pretty good analogy uh, for what's happening now with the tech bubble. You know, it was a little bit different. Um, but you basically had, you know, the promises of Internet changing our lives. I mean, if you go back to 2000, the peak of the, the tech bubble, we were still using AOL dial-up, right? I mean, it was Internet penetration was actually quite low. We hadn't seen 
all True. the implications for more internet usage. Yet, if you look at that period, it took you 14 years to make your money back. So there's a difference between you know the story and the investment. I'm just saying, I think that's similar today. So yeah. I think the real opportunity is owning the stuff that's really cheap. I mean, you're talking about 10, 11, 12 times multiples for stuff that's probably going to surprise the upside, where is if you look at analyst earnings forecasts, even for like technology, they're lower than energy. But people don't know that and people don't care and people are not willing uh, to pay you know, more than a nine times multiple for energy despite so, that. So you could own technology as long as it's not large cap, in other words, the stuff that people are, are less excited about? Well, I mean, Kelly, I think, you know, we're in the midst of a deflating bubble. And if you think about the last three or four years, you know, everything even related to technology, I mean, you're seeing kind of with the AI, you know, mm -hmm. buzzword story today, you know, anything even remotely related technology and innovation was going up. And so that benefited the small caps, it benefited a lot of different areas. And so as that bubble deflates, it's going to be like, you know, falling tides that are going to, you know, sink, not sink, but take right. all the ship's levels down. No, it's um, it. Yeah, I'm trying to go give you a new face. So anything but ABLCG, anything but large cap growth, I think is, is, is the bottom line here. Yeah. Dan, let's pivot, if you will, stay with us, Dan and Dom, uh, as we move to talk about China. There has been a huge dramatic increase in U.S.-China tensions this year, driven by Russia's war on Ukraine, America bolstering its defense of Taiwan, and then the spy balloon incident setting relations back even further. Sunday marks the start of the National People's Congress in China, and it has some big implications for investors. Eunice Yoon joins us from Beijing, Eunice, with what to expect. Well, Kelly, over the next week and a half or so, Chinese lawmakers are going to be discussing the country's outlook for the year, including on the economy. On Sunday, the outgoing premier, Li Keqiang, is going to deliver his work report, which is going to unveil the annual growth target. The expectation is that we're going to see GDP growth at above 5 percent, uh, possibly as high as 6 percent as the country continues to recover, hopefully after a zero COVID. Uh, the bigger issue, though, is uh, President Xi Jinping's political control over economic policymaking, because so far uh, the indications from him and his team have been that they're much more interested in state and Communist Party intervention. Uh, so the old team of family freezes to many uh, U.S. investors, such as uh, the trade negotiator Liu He, who was uh, working on the deal with the U.S. Uh, uh, long ago, um, those people are out. The new team um, looks as though it's going to be stacked with Xi protégés. Uh, the state media also has flagged that an, uh, what they've described as a far-reaching uh, reform plan is in the offing, which would entrench the Communist Party into more government institutions, including the central bank. Uh, so we don't know a whole lot of detail, but what we do know is that it's supposed to affect the financial system the uh, technology industry, um, private enterprise, as well as the public and uh, state security um, organs. So that would be the police as well as intelligence gathering. Uh, so far, uh, in terms of the delegate list, also some interesting changes. Uh, the top tech entrepreneurs, uh, so the bosses of, uh, say, Baidu, uh, Tencent, uh, NetEase, as well as JD, those guys are out and the ones who are uh, kind of taking their place, or at least uh, we're seeing a lot more of them, are some of the bosses of the big partially owned, um, partially state owned or fully state owned chip industry, as well as AI players. Kelly? All right, Eunice, appreciate it very much. Our Eunice Yoon reporting in Beijing for us. Let's listen to what Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass said this morning about President Xi's recent political appointments at that 20th Party Congress last fall. Here's what he told Squawk Box. Imagine if we removed the head of the SEC 
the head of our central bank and uh, uh, our secretary of treasury all in one move and replace them with people from the CIA and people from the state police and and people, uh, military generals in charge of of uh, missile batteries. I mean, what you saw Xi Jinping do was install a war cabinet. Well, all of that and a potential executive order against outbound U.S. investment in China that could be imminent. Dan, you're still bullish on Chinese stocks. Explain. Yeah, Kelly, I think, you know, when you think about, you know, the geopolitical risk, I think one thing is, uh, you know, who's not aware that there's huge geopolitical risk when it comes to Chinese stocks? I mean, I think that's embedded, you know, in Chinese valuations that trade at like nine or 10 times multiples. Um, and I think that as, as with insurance, people tend to over overpay, uh, you know, for the for the fear. Right. And so I think a lot of those fears are embedded. What we tend to do is just focus on the fundamentals that tend to drive markets, which is profits, liquidity and sentiment. And when you look at it through that narrow lens of those three fundamental factors, the reality is profits have been terrible in China. It's been a terrible place to invest over the last few years. But yet now they're actually exiting the profits recession as the rest of the world is entering a profits recession. And what's going to help this story as, you know, Unlike with the U.S., which is tightening into a profit recession, you know, China is actually easing as it's exiting the profit recession, yet nobody wants to own those stocks. So I think, you know, listen, there's going to be longer term concerns that you can be con have issues with. But I think if you have this conversation six months from now, you know, 12 months from now, I think profits are going to be more attractive there. And that's going to be a strong runway for, for returns for the Chinese stock market. I think, Kelly, the thing that you have to be wary about if you're an investor in China if you're an investor outside of China investing in China, there's a handful of companies that are the public face of investing in China. And I would venture to say three quarters, if not more of those, are in big cap tech or fintech type companies. These are the same companies, as Eunice just pointed out, that the government is going to seemingly take more control over or have more regulatory or oversight over or exert even more influence over. They just talked about this revamping of the cabinet. So there's this push and pull tug of war, if you will. There is a great economic story about the reopening of China post-COVID zero. Even right? though we haven't really seen Even it though we in really oil seen, and uh, oil demand. prices have yep. not gone up or anything. But there is a, you can argue, that you can debate that there's an economic narrative that say, hey, the world's second biggest economy is opening up. This is going to be a boon. At the same time, though, the political environment there is going to crack down on the company seemingly that are the most prominent in terms of the Chinese public investing economy. And so there is where lies the rub, right? You don't know whether those companies are going to kind of have this headwind for the next, say, X number of years because of the government. Dan, quick last word. Yeah, I think I think Dom makes some really great points, and and I would say that you know I think if you if you under, if you follow what the Chinese government you know how it's how their position has changed over the last year, you know they're clearly prioritizing you know near term growth down the line. They want to do that balance in a balanced fashion. They're prioritizing near-term growth. And, and the areas that, that Dom mentioned that you want to be wary of in terms of government regulation, the good thing is those are the areas that got, that got destroyed the most over the bear market of the last few years. So I think a lot of those concerns are, are priced in. But you do have to be mindful that there's going to be those regulatory risks going forward. All right. Very interesting. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Dan Suzuki, Dom Chu. Dom, I'll see you soon. Yeah. Coming up, wondering how the return to office is going? Look no further than one of the country's largest office reads, Vornado, downstairs. 60% from its recent highs, 80% from its all-time high back in 2015, and just yesterday hit its lowest level in 25 years. Today, BMO's cutting it to underperform, saying there's even more risk ahead. The analyst joins us next to make his case. 
Plus, for 30 years, we've had the Taylor Rule to tell us where the Fed should be setting rates. Right now, by some measures, it should be 9%. Is that right, or is it time to turn the page? We'll ask the man behind the benchmark, John Taylor himself. As we head to break, let's get a quick look at markets. Dow's up 280 points near session highs. And it's the underperformer. The Nasdaq's up 1.6% as the 10-year has receded all the way to 397. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Rates are coming off a tough couple of years, and the news is not getting much better yet. PIMCO defaulting on a nearly $2 billion mortgage across seven different buildings. Amazon pausing construction of their second headquarters in Virginia. But BMO sees some possible upside for at least a few names. They're upgrading Empire State to buy with a stock up 14% this year. Downgrading Vornado to underperform the stock down 6% and trading at its lowest levels in 25 years. So how do you separate the weakest from the rest? Let's bring in John Kim. He's a real estate analyst with BMO. John, it's good to have you here. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Good to, thanks. Good to I, see you. I think the thing we're all trying to figure out is whether the worst is upon us. And this data from CoStar, and, and by the way, the title of your note is Staying Alive to 2025. So let's just give people a sense of how you see the environment. CoStar thinks the national vacancy rate is 13%. It's going to peak at almost 14% next year, then improve. And so you see trouble for Vornado in particular because they have a higher number of leases coming due before then. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the next two years are really crucial for the office space because vacancy rates at an all-time high in many markets. Who knows when demand's going to really pick up? But optimistically, we could say the earliest that's going to be is the second half of next year. And then top of that, you look at the, at the balance sheets of these companies and the short-term or SOFA rate. The forward curve is basically indicating the remaining of this year is going to remain elevated. And you really start to get some relief at the back half of next year as well. So a lot of the companies really need to navigate tough waters uh, this year and next. And the light at the end of the tunnel could be 2025. So that could be optimistic. Wow. But that's why we're focusing on the companies who have the most risk in the near term. And uh, one of the reasons why we downgraded Vernado and uh, Douglas Emmett. Today. Yeah, Douglas Emmett, for those who are less familiar with it, they mostly work in coastal submarkets like Los Angeles and Honolulu. So Vornado obviously is more New York centric. And you think that over time they should benefit because New York is more diversified than some of the tech focused real estate. John, what's the fundamental problem here? Is it simply that we are, you know, we're hearing more headlines about companies pushing people to come back to work, in some cases, five days a week. Are we ultimately going to get back to what we saw pre-pandemic or not? I mean, it's the fundamental problem for all of these REITs, the idea that uh, there's just going to be a lot more real estate than we need forever. 
Well, that's the big debate because I think a lot of companies want to bring back employees, but once they start pushing, there's just a lot of pushback. And now we're on our third year of working flexibly and working from home. Some people working remote full time. And we've seen that with Amazon. They, they tried to mandate a three-day work week, and they've gotten a lot of pushback for, from, their, from their employee base. So I think it's going to be really hard. You know, our view is that office is not dead. There will be demand going forward. We need to have people back in the office to fully, um, you know, be functional as companies. But it's not going to be that easy, you know. So uh, right now we're through a cyclical downturn, and structurally we're going to see what happens. We just don't know the, the answer right now. And there is a bright spot. You mentioned Empire State, actually. Uh, they own, I believe, the Empire State Building itself, maybe some other properties. But why are they an outperform and why have they held up relatively well here? Well, two things. A lot of companies are pivoting away uh, from pure office. And Empire State, before the pandemic, 25% of the income was coming from the observatory. The observatory has held up very well, even with new competition in New York, as far as observatories. They've held the number one position. And we're looking at uh, the next couple of years where the U.S. dollar is getting a little bit weaker. That can encourage more tourism into New York. China's reopening. That's been a big contingency as far as visitors to the Empire State Building. So we have a core part of the business really growing. Um, and on top of that, Empire State has a very strong balance sheet, uh, near-term expirations through 2025. Uh, so on both fronts that we're looking at as far as navigating the next two years, we think it, it looks pretty clean. All right. We appreciate you coming on, John. And uh, for the research here, John Kim, as everyone's focused on this sector where we do see a lot of the pain spreading. Speaking of Empire State Realty Trust, we have an interview on Monday with the CEO, Tony Melkin. That'll be right here on The Exchange at 1 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, could ESPN become the one-stop shop for all live sports streaming? We've got exclusive reporting on those deal talks and what it would mean for parent company Disney's bottom line. The shares are up 1.6 percent today. Speaking of Disney, they're among the leaders in the Dow with Apple and Boeing also out front today, while Verizon and United Health are among the laggards. The blue chips are trying for their first positive week in five. We're back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. 20 points off the session high right now for the Dow and the Nasdaq up 1.6% as rates recede. And let's focus also on some of the other movers this hour where we're seeing First Solar hitting their highest level since 2009 after an upgrade at UBS today to a buy. The stock's up 5%. The firm calling it the most significant beneficiary of the Inflation Reduction Act. They see the stock climbing another 25% from here. It's already up 28% this week. Remember, they posted that smaller than expected loss Tuesday. Full year guidance ahead of estimates. It's on pace for its best week since July. And for more on that story, you can go to CNBC.com slash pro. Elsewhere, United Airlines hitting its highest level since November of 2021. November 21, by the way, was when the Nasdaq peaked. So that tells you about how well it's done lately. It's up 32% over the past year, outperforming Delta and American by a mile. Those stocks are only up 7 and 4.5%. And its rally since January for United 40% puts it on track for its best quarter since 2014. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for a CNBC news update. Bertha? 
Hey, thanks, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Meta is slashing prices for its virtual reality headsets. Both the Quest Pro and Quest 2 will see price cuts in coming days, dropping by $500 for Quest Pro and $70 for the Quest 2. Meta lost over $13 billion on its Reality Labs segment in 2022. That's the business unit responsible for building the Compass's metaverse technologies. Columbia University becoming the first Ivy League school to permanently go test optional. The school's undergraduate admissions will stop requiring SAT and or ACT test scores when considering applicants. Other Ivy League schools have extended the test optional policy that was adopted during the pandemic, but only Columbia so far has permanently adopted the initiative. Maine lobstermen landed their smallest haul in a decade this year amid ongoing industry challenges. Fishermen dealt with surging fuel and bait prices, rebukes from retailers, and the possibility of new fishing restrictions. Maine lobster has exploded in value in recent years, in part due to growing international demand from countries such as China. So I guess that lobster roll is going to cost a whole lot more this summer, Kelly. It seems always to. Uh, Bertha, thank you very much. Still ahead, should the Fed funds rate actually be at 9% right now? That's what some say the Taylor rule says, but is it time to toss it out? What does John Taylor himself think? We will ask him next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Still hot inflation data could force the Fed to hike rates above 5%, according to Fed Governor Christopher Waller. But by using a respected set of calculations that guided the Fed for years, the funds rate should actually be almost double that. If you use John Taylor's Taylor rule created in the 90s, the funds rate should be 9% right now, meaning the Fed is woefully behind the curve in fighting inflation. And here to discuss it himself is the creator of the Taylor rule, Stanford University professor of economics, John Taylor. We need like a Leisman rule at this, as well. At I this have point. a couple rules, but I would just like to point out I'm only here so I can have a first row uh, seat in the class with <laughs> Professor Taylor. Well, the, okay. the most important thing, uh, Professor, and, and thank you for your time. I've seen now, now that thanks to you know tools like Fred and Twitter, I, I see people saying the Taylor Rule says we should be at ten percent. The Taylor Rule says nine percent. What does Taylor say the Taylor Rule says policy should be right now? Well, you know, it really depends on what you think the inflation rate is. If you put the inflation rate in at four percent, that's kind of mild. It says six percent. Six percent is where it should be. So I'd like the Fed to get to that point and then. Six percent. But, but let's rewind for a second, because people the reason they don't like the Taylor rule is they say it's just a, a set of calculations. It's too hard and fast. So how can we be talking about different outcomes? This sounds like this is more flexible. Well, it's not so flexible. First of all, it depends on what you think the inflation rate is. And there's debate about that. Is it coming down? Is it steady? And, and, and that's that's an issue. So I'm assuming inflation rate is four. That's pretty mild in some sense to get to six. But it's a very simple formula. It's been around 30 years. That's a long time. And the Fed has used it from time to time. And they all know about it. And I think they're getting back. But what is most concerned is for a whole year, they were way below, way below, you know, right. half a percent. And, and they're, they're getting back. I wish they could back a little faster. It would be safe for you don't want to have the replay of the 70s. I want to remind people, we should have grabbed the soundbite, uh, Professor. You were on our show about, I want to say about a year ago, said we should be at 5% and everyone, oh, that's crazy. Well, guess what? Uh, that's not sounding crazy at all. Steve? John, you, I think you cut yourself off there for a second. And I, I, maybe I, I'm going to finish the thought. You said they're getting back. 
Did you mean they're getting back to following a Taylor rule more closely? Is that would that have completed your sentence there? Yeah, I think I think that's one way to think about it. They don't they have different views, different perspectives. Uh, I know most of them, but they are getting closer. You know, four and a half, four and three quarters is closer to six or seven. And I think uh, given the inflation rate has not really come down a lot, there's debates about that. And less numbers weren't so great. You got to still move a little bit higher, and I think that's that's what I would favor they they do. And by the way, you have to mention as other countries, it's not just the Fed; it's a global issue. The ECB is even further behind. John, maybe the one thing I could add to this is to talk about how the Fed thinks about the Taylor Rule, and you can of course correct me if I'm wrong here, but I I want to concur with your opinion here, which is that when I hear Fed officials talking about the four 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 five four five six area, it comports with somewhat different versions of the Taylor rule that are out there. The Cleveland Fed actually publishes 27 different versions of the Taylor rule. Wow. <laughs> there, there, are, there are seven different rules times, oh, sorry, it's 21, seven different rules times three different forecasts. Everyone the says it's the so forecasts are key. But, but what I do hear, John, and I think even though they, they say they don't want to follow a rule precisely, it seems to me more and more like they're hewing to this idea of this five and a half to six range, which is supported in a lot of different Taylor rules. Is that you think that's right? I think that's right. I think that, by the way, you know, the Fed has published the Taylor rule that's in their report now. They put right. it back in June 17, 2022, and it's there. And it went out, went in, went out. Now it's back in again. So they pay attention to it. Uh, they're paying more attention at this point now. But I would say let's get to six. Maybe it's a little bit further, but let's let's get to that point. We've got a ways to go. I don't think it should be delayed too much. And then uh, and see what happens. I, I think you might have to go higher, but I don't know yet. And and there are different versions. It depends on what the inflation rate right. is depends on what GDP gap is and also things like there's only two variables, by the way, GDP gap and inflation. And there's also the debate about what should the equilibrium inflation rate be. Uh, John Williams contributed to that discussion before, knocked it down from two to one. Hmm. And so that takes a couple points off. John, one of the interesting features of the market today and its outlook on the Fed is the idea that it believes that beginning next year it will begin to cut. And I don't know, guys, if you have that long-range chart that shows the Fed funds futures in 2025 coming down by about 130 basis points once peaking at a 540 rate. What do you think about that? What does the Taylor Rule tell us about whether or not the market has that forecast correct? It depends on what they think of the inflation rate. If the inflation rate stays high, they're going to have to keep it high. I think that the, the danger of is cutting too fast. And I think that's what you're seeing a little bit this way. They're optimistic inflation will come down. Maybe it will. But we have to wait to see it comes down. That's the whole notion of a rule. That's the whole notion of a policy strategy, uh, whether you call it a rule or not, that uh, the Fed seems to be paying attention to more now than they were before. You mentioned your rule it takes into account both inflation expectations, but also the GDP gap. What is the GDP gap right now? It's nearly zero. It's really, you know, we're basically... Uh, Based on the unemployment rate, a very low unemployment rate. So I would just put that aside. Makes it easier. Is uh, is debate about what the gap should be. I put that aside and focus on the inflation rate, which is still quite high. Yeah, and, you know, John, should we should we put it aside? I, I, I've been thinking a lot about the labor force and how yes. uh, uh, Chair Ta- Chair Powell has said. Chair, I was going to say Chair Taylor, <laughs> perfectly possible. But Chair Powell has said he doesn't see the workforce coming back to what it was before. If we have a lower labor force growth, we're going to have lower GDP, and that means that the output gap is what? It's, 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 it's negative. It may, we're running too hot right now in terms of the economy. 
Well, what, what you want to do, the unemployment rate and the GDP gap are kind of measuring the same thing. You have to put them on back. And the Taylor rule, we used the uh, GDP gap, and there's unemployment versions of that. And so I think that as, as long as they're in sync and there's debates about what the full employment unemployment rate is, or the debates about what potential GDP is, it always makes That's it hard to That's what I'm talking about, yeah. John, uh, Professor, before we let you go, I want to kind of ask all of this from a very different point of view. There's been a lot of criticism that the Fed is a lagging body that reacts to lagging data. And all of this talk about inflation and GDP is somewhat lagging. What about the idea they need to be more forward looking? The leading indicators right now are abysmal. As you know, everything but jobless claims looks really bad. The yield curves are horrendous. And don't you think they should be taking leading data more into account as the body that sets leading economic policy? Well, to some extent, a rule does that, right? You, to guess what the interest rate will be, just Steve was asking a few minutes ago, next year, you got to think of what the inflation rate is next year. So there's, it's already forward-looking. It's built in to the idea. It's not forward-looking. It looks at what the inflation rate is and builds that in, but it really is part of the rule, part of the strategy. But we're bad at forecasting is, inflation. We learned that last year. That's true. So, in fact, you, you guess what the inflation rate will be, and then you guess what the funds rate will be. So that's a forecast, and it could be wrong. That's why the rule is written as in terms of the current inflation rate and the current estimate of the, the uh, full employment unemployment rate. But I think the main thing is is there is already a rule. Rule means you say what you're going to do now and you last. I actually see some uh, favorability coming back to think, well, we need to have some strategy, some rule that's been used more in the past. I think the pandemic got off. There was lots of quotes I quoted from Powell and others that uh, said we should get back, and uh, they, that was delayed. Now I think there was a whole, a whole year or a year and a half where they were too low by most people's calculations, and it's best yeah. if they get back as far as, as fast as they can. Well, certainly, I know, I know there are a lot of people who say this is a hard and fast rule and that's no good, but I, certainly we would have had a better outcome if people had listened you to can, what it was saying and, and gotten more ahead of this. You can play this ago. game at home. If you go to the Cleveland Fed website, which has all the different Taylor rules, they allow you to download a spreadsheet where you can put in your own variables and come up with your own version of the, We should do that the at the Telestrator. We could do there it at the Telestrator. Yes. It's very complicated, but it's, it's more fun than an economics reporter should have a right to have. <laughs> We should, we should just publish the page from the Fed report. It's right there. Yeah, the Fed report has it in there. And also, uh, there's yeah. a pretty good explanation of different tailwinds. They're not hard to understand. It's, it's the idea is that, is that Fed, the, the underlying principles of Fed policy are not that complicated. But you don't know the inflation rate in the future. That's this. Can I call it the sticking point? Professor yeah. Taylor, thank you so much. Steve, a huge thanks as well. Pleasure. Our Steve Leesman. Thank you. Still ahead. Thanks very much. The 30-year mortgage rate holding above 7%, mortgage demand at a 30-year low, a lack of inventory still pressuring prices. Is the nascent housing recovery already over? And don't forget, we're live at Sierra Week in Houston starting Monday. Brian Sullivan bringing us the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, Scott Sheffield. Very much looking forward to that right here Monday, 1 p.m. Eastern. We're back after this. Mortgage rates crossed back above 7% yesterday for the first time since the fall, and we're just below that level right now. For more on the fallout across the housing sector and the housing trades, let's bring in Diana Olek. Diana. 
Well, Kelly, mortgage rates, as you said, pulled back very slightly this morning, but the damage was already done yesterday when the average rate on the 30-year fix crossed over 7% to 7.1%. Today, we're back just under 6.97, though clearly the trajectory is higher now, as we've seen the rate jump about 100 basis points in just the past four weeks. And the stocks of the home builders are not loving that. Home construction ETF ITB is down almost 7% from a month ago. But take a look at the three-month chart. It had surged much higher in January when mortgage rates dropped back to 6%. Builders were calling a recovery in the market. Homebuilder sentiment jumped up for two straight months. Not so much anymore now. Mortgage lenders showing the same story way up in January when rates dropped down, but then came way back down over the past month. Builders and lenders are up on the day simply because bond yields pulled back again, as we said a little today. But again, that trajectory is still up. So what does it mean for the spring housing market ahead? Well, some are saying the brief recovery has now stalled. Realtor.com just put out its February report showing that while active listings are up nearly 68% from a year ago, new listings are down 17%. So that just means that homes that are on the market now are just not selling. Why? Because they're not affordable thanks to higher mortgage rates. Kelly? Wow. Diana, thank you very much. Uh, whipsaw market so far this year. Diana Olick. Still ahead, decluttering sports with more and more platforms involved. You know, it's hard to actually find the games on game day. ESPN is proposing a solution, and we have that story next. Welcome back. There's been lots of debate over whether Disney should spin off ESPN, but did the sports network just make a move that could help Disney better profit from it? CNBC.com's Alex Sherman broke the story that ESPN has been talking with major sports leagues and media partners to become a streaming hub of all live sports. How much of a game changer could it be for Disney and others? Let's bring in Alex Sherman along with Sean McNulty, contributor with The Ankler, and Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief with Variety. Welcome to all of you, Alex. I mean, listen, this would be really helpful for a lot of viewers. How profitable would it be for ESPN? I think it's more of a strategic big picture story than a, an investor story. I'm not sure anyone's going to change their opinion on whether or not they should invest in Disney because of this. I mean, the, the conceit is that by partnering with other media companies and directly sending customers to a given streaming service that is not owned by Disney, that is airing a live sports game, ESPN could then take a cut of that revenue. Uh, for each new subscriber that it signed up. Hmm. Uh, but big picture, it changes the conception of ESPN. It puts ESPN in the content discovery game rather than just in the uh, original content game. And I think that's an interesting perspective for people as they look at big media companies going forward. Sure. And so, Sean, according to Alex's piece, the way this would work is you go to ESPN.com or you go to the app. You see, OK, this baseball game is streaming on Apple TV, for instance, you kind of click through to that. ESPN would take, it sounds like a little cut, but so the partners are trying to figure out whether it's worth it to maybe surface their product better, um, but give up that kind of first relationship with the viewer. That's exactly right. They want to be the first thing you think of when you think sports and my TV by connected TV. So you, if you're a sports fan, no matter what, you'll know in your head, you can go to that ESPN app and find your team, whether that's the Seattle Mariners or whether that's the New York Rangers or whatever it might be. And from there, you will find your team versus going through the myriad of apps that are only increasing 
to find your team and where they are right now. As, as I've said before on, on CNBC, MLB has five TV deals. NHL is two or three. You know, NBA is going to make a whole bunch. So finding your team is going to become a, a lot harder. And this is a goal of simplifying that for the sports fan and being that first stop for anybody with a connected TV who's a sports fan looking for their team. I think it's super clever, Cynthia, if it works. I mean, again, we can't really speak to the, the economics of it just yet, but do you like this as a move that, that you know potentially would go all the way up to, to being blessed by Baba Iger? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, as we've as people have talked about, you know, content navigation and content discovery is the biggest challenge, is one of the biggest challenges of the digital age. In a world where the audience is so diffuse, anything like ESPN, which is utterly synonymous with sports, for so many, it, it is a natural move for them. And remember, content en engagement is such a, viewer engagement is such an important metric for these platforms. If, if ESPN, if people know that they are reliably a hub, wait, where can I find that NBA game on? I can just go to ESPN. That will absolutely increase engagement metrics that really matter to investors. Is it too late, Alex? In other words, are they, you know, have they already lost enough mind share that people know, okay, Amazon has the NFL Thursdays. Okay, Apple, I'm, I'm, I'm learning that they have my games. I don't really need to go to ESPN to be reminded of that. Is it too late? I don't think so. Uh, honestly, I think if you talk to almost anybody and you ask them where we are in the streaming game, I think a constant complaint they're going to tell you is, I don't really know where anything is. I mean, certainly when I speak to people, yeah. it goes beyond sports. This goes to general entertainment in general, you know, beyond, I'm talking about scripted entertainment, talking about award shows, whatever it may be. Absolutely. It used to be you would just go on your cable TV guide and be able to watch it. It is much more confusing now. So I think it is a legit complaint uh, that nobody really knows where a given game is. And so I do think it's, it's a smart idea, a consumer-friendly idea, if ESPN can pull this together. But I should note that right now, the talks are just kind of in the gauge your interest stage. I, I think we're a, a decent ways away from this feature actually launching. Sure. And if it's, Sean, if it's anything like the way I use Netflix or YouTube, I'll spend the whole time on ESPN just scrolling to figure out what I do want to watch as opposed to actually leaving to go elsewhere. But um, how important do you think for the other companies would it be to try to protect that first-hand relationship with the customer? That's what this whole rollout was originally all about. Yeah, do you want to help a competitor is always the thing. You know, it may refer traffic, and which is you know it increases the funnel of customers coming in from an outside source, which is great. But do you want to be the second or third place people think of when it comes to sports or finding your team? It's a dangerous slope, and uh, the upside is not that apparent for like, well, we're going to concede this over to ESPN, and then who knows what their plan is in the future? They change the terms of the deal, and once everybody's thought of it and they have the mind share then what happens? And that's a dangerous place to be, as any media company knows in this day and age. Cynthia, quick last word. I think this is an interesting example. ESPN is the analog ESPN is somewhat of a problem in a world where old fashioned cable TV subscriptions are shrinking. But this is a good example of ESPN is also incredibly a, a real hub for experimentation for Disney. There's a lot of places that they can go to bring interactivity into this. We all know sports betting is going to be a bigger part of ESPN in the future. And it's an interesting example of ESPN as a good sort of experimental vehicle 
for Disney trying to navigate the digital age. Yeah, you know, and then they could launch a sports center show, you know, I mean, on this hub. I mean, it's like they're recreating, blast from the past, uh, but in some ways core to its identity. And it's a great story, Alex. Thanks so much for your reporting and bringing that to us. Alex Sherman, Sean and Cynthia, thanks as well. Sean McNulty and Cynthia Littleton joining us on The Exchange. That does it for us today. For more, you can sign up for my newsletter by scanning the QR code on your screen or heading to cnbc.com slash exchange dash newsletter. Coming up on Power Lunch, rising rates not stopping buyers in America's most expensive real estate market. We'll take you there live. Dom Chu, I hope he's getting ready. There he is. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. Check the batteries. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.